0: So as we continue this morning in worship, could we start by just asking God again for his help, that he would take his word and use it in our lives? Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would open our hearts to what it is that you would want to say to us through your word. Or we know that when we open your word, it's something that you breathed out, for our good. So Lord, speak to us. And we want to pray for our brothers and sisters this morning who aren't able to be here because they're laboring, because they they need to work. Work for our common good this morning. Would you pray that you would meet them even where they are right now with your presence? And would you continue to meet us where we are right here, Lord? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible Let's turn to James chapter 3. We're going to continue in James chapter 3 this week. We do have Bibles in the corners of the room, in the front and in the back. If you don't have one, Um, take one. We'd love for you to have that open with you this morning as we dig in. We're going to read our passage from James 3 shortly. Real brief recap of of last week. So you'll find that James 3 and the part we're going to cover today and last week go together. And then you'll find that next week, as we go into chapter four, that this is actually one large chunk of scripture that our divisions in scripture can make look like totally separate thoughts. They're not. It was written as a letter, and this is one thought that we're breaking down into three weeks. So last week, you might remember, was all about the tongue, this very small member of our body that has the power to direct the course of our life and other people's lives. James gave the example of a rudder on a ship. This small rudder on this big ship can turn the ship where it wants to go. He gave the example of a small fire that would grow into a forest fire and set the whole forest ablaze. Our words matter. What comes out of our mouth to each other matters. They can bring great discouragement and to discourage someone is to steal strength from them, to weaken them. Or, our words can encourage. They can add strength to each other. And don't we all know that we need as much encouragement as we can get? We need as much strength for life as we can get. In today's passage, James is going to go deeper. He's going to go into the inner dynamics of our hearts and what causes those encouraging words Or those discouraging words? What is the source of them? And why do they come out of our mouth? Especially the moments when we wish they were different. James is going to lead us into a bit this week and then continue next week about why that is and what needs to be done about it. Let's read James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct... gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So in this passage, James describes two different kinds of wisdom. And I have a slide that kind of breaks down how he separates these two different kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom that comes from above that ultimately finds its source in the divine, in God. And there's a wisdom, in quotes, because it's a so-called wisdom, that ultimately is below, but really originates in the the demonic. A wisdom that originates in evil personal forces that are anti-creation. All they want to do is destroy the good and distort the good, that God has made. And each kind of wisdom has drastically different results in the world and in our lives around us and in our relationships. The wisdom from above, you can see in the very last verse, verse 18, Paul says, the wisdom from above results in peace. It results in peace. And this is not peace as a mere tranquil feeling, like a feeling of peacefulness. It's richer and thicker than that. It's actually, maybe you've heard the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. This is shalom. And that means wholeness or completeness, harmony, or just things as they were meant to be. Things between us and things between us and God and things in the world. That kind of peace. Whereas this other wisdom, this so-called wisdom, results in chaos That's what that disorder word means, just chaos and every vile practice, meaning all the evil. That's what it results in, in the world around us. We're going to see this morning as we walk through this passage that being able to recognize the difference between the wisdom that is from above or the wisdom that is from below is really important. So being able to know it and see it is important, but even more important than just recognizing it is becoming the kind of people who embody Becoming the kind of people from which heavenly, spiritual, and divine wisdom flows out of us into all the spheres that we have influence over. These two contrasting forms of wisdom reflect two different realms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. The people who together, this is something we do together, embody the wisdom from above form an alternative community something that is abnormal and separate. It's an alternative community because they are citizens of the kingdom of heaven colonizing this earth. Wherever this community of people goes, they bring the ways of heaven with them. In Jesus, this group of people, this community has experienced healing and forgiveness. They're cleansed and renewed. And in Jesus, they possess a power that is not their own that far exceeds anything that they were going to be able to produce on their own. And this heavenly wisdom flows out of them. They seek to participate in what has been called the divine conspiracy. And the divine conspiracy is a conspiracy to overcome evil with good, wherever we find it, as he empowers us. That community of people full of wisdom from above brings the ways of heaven to earth. I wanna think for a minute about this opening question that James asked. He says, who is wise in understanding among you? Who is wise among you? Think about your life. Who is someone you consider to be wise? Someone's coming to mind. Think about that person. What is it about them that you would consider wise? How have you experienced them? that has brought wisdom into your life? What character qualities do they possess? What does it feel like to be with them? Even in our world today where outward appearance and fame are really the highest cultural things you could achieve, they're the things that are most important, what you look like and and what others think of you, people still do want to be known as wise. Or at least they don't want to be known as foolish. They want to acquire wisdom and to be known as a wise person. And there's a picture, at least in my mind, and I think probably in many of your minds, that with age comes wisdom. Right? The idea is that as you live and you experience the successes and the failures of life, the ups and downs of life, you accumulate wisdom. And for some people, that's true. But as we walk through this today, we'll see that Growing older does not equate with wisdom automatically. In fact, some people become more and more foolish as they age. When I think about that question, who is wise among you, I immediately think of the number of profound conversations I have had with people in this room. Church, we have so much to be thankful for. God has put among us seasoned saints, people who embody this wisdom, who we can learn from and glean from. They are not often the people who jump up on stage because they don't necessarily want to be seen by everyone, but they are among us. We can experience them and learn from them. And I feel so thankful this week as I've been studying this, how God has put them here. And then the other category of wise people in my life that I think about are people who have mentored me, people who have taken of their time and energy to help me grow. That they've just selflessly given themselves to me, their time and their energy. James makes it very clear, doesn't he, how we are supposed to identify the wise person? Look what he says. It's by the person's good conduct. The wise person will be known by the pattern of their life, by the totality and the rhythms of their life. The things that are routine for that person are the things that bring life to other people. So James is trying to make this key point right at the outset. True wisdom is demonstrated and vindicated by a good life. It's a simple point. It really is. But it could be so easy to miss in our world. It sounds similar, doesn't it, to something James has been saying kind of over and over again throughout this letter? He's been saying faith without works is dead. So faith that is not demonstrated with works isn't real faith. It will always be accompanied with works, and wisdom that is true wisdom will always be accompanied by a life that reflects it. But why would James need to draw this distinction out for them? I just want to think a little bit about what the context might have been for them, because I think it will help us think about our context and how we apply it today. Why would he need to draw this out for this body of believers what sort of circumstance would call for this opening question followed by what really is sort of a test he asks this question who is wise among you assuming that some of them are thinking immediately me and then he responds with essentially well then prove it live it out what could be going on among them Evidently, I mean, we don't know 100% for sure, but evidently there were some among them who postured themselves as the wise and full of understanding people. But they were not actually wise people. They were all about themselves. And the problem was that not only did they think they were wise, but other people thought they were wise too. And they were kind of gaining a following. So at least some of the believers in this community were looking at people and thinking they were great and wise and really should be imitated, and James is saying, no, actually, they're not. They're, they're embodying a counterfeit wisdom, actually. Perhaps it was the confidence and skill with which they spoke to each other that led people to see them as wise, or maybe it was extensive knowledge of theology. With every, every question a person asked them, they had an answer for, and they gave it with confidence, no hesitation at all. They knew theology. Some scholars think and know that there were some who were aggressive, that they postured themselves as speaking for the truth and contending for what is true, but they did it with an aggressiveness and an assertiveness that betrayed the king they said they were following. Because really, again, it was all about them earning a following. Whatever the specific circumstances for them, This message was crucial. It was of critical importance for this body of believers and it's of critical importance for us in our church today. This message is so applicable. We are living through a cultural moment where this wisdom from above is needed more than ever in the church and in the world around us because counterfeit wisdom abounds. Counterfeit wisdom is everywhere and in many ways It is easier than ever to appear to be wise, rather than to actually be wise. We have really high-tech ways to market an image of ourselves, to gain a following. We can easily promote a message, or a product, or an idea, and we live in an age of so much information. With like zero effort, just a few keystrokes, we can have more information about any topic that we want than we could ever use. We can become experts, experts in quotes, on just about anything. So this easy access to information and then the ability to then talk about what you know and promote yourself and your image makes us susceptible to being led astray by people who are not actually wise, that don't embody the wisdom that is from above, They're self-proclaimed experts. And this is happening in just about every field of knowledge. But especially with theology and with the church. The challenge with this dynamic of people being able to promote their ideas and their expertise through information is that we never actually get to experience what they are like in person. I mean, for most of us, the experts that we encounter online are just words on a screen, or maybe an image in a YouTube video. But we have no idea what their life is really like. We don't know if we spent the afternoon with them, what would it feel like? And what would we walk away having been changed by? We just, we don't know. We're in an age that is a flood of information. We need to know how to sort through this to find true wisdom. I wanna take a minute And think about the difference between information and wisdom. Because I think that distinction is really important as we sort through these kinds of wisdom. Information is all about content. Information is about content. Taking it in. James says that wisdom is not about content, but about conduct. Yes, there's content that drives it, but it is primarily about conduct. Thinking about this experience this week uh, reminded me of something that happened in the early days of my life as a campus minister. I want to share a quick story with you that illustrates the difference between information and wisdom from above. So, we were at a large university campus. I was in my mid 20s. And we had an opportunity to host a debate on campus where two people would get together and discuss an idea. The the idea or the proposition for the night was, the triune God of scripture exists. Sounds exciting, right? It was for me anyways. Our group hosted a very well-known Christian thinker. You flew him in and he was going to debate the president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Isn't that an interesting name? Freedom From Religion Foundation. I was so excited. I had read this Christian Thinker's books. I had listened to his lectures, and I was going to get to pick him up, host him, get him around student leaders, and then bring him to to the debate. So I spent the whole day with him and actually really enjoyed my time with him. He was brilliant. He had more information that I could possibly hope to ever hold in my head He had mastered the theology and the arguments for the existence of God. He knew his opponent's arguments better than his opponent, I think. When it came time to debate, his skill in reasoning and logic and being quick on his feet was so evident to everyone there. Hundreds of college kids watching. He won the argument easily, but he lost the debate significantly. In my opinion, as this man debated, he belittled, he sought to embarrass, and he made sure everyone in the room knew how smart he was. He had all the right information, but he didn't have this wisdom that could deliver the information in a way that would reflect the ways of Jesus. Now, I know in a debate there's going to be disagreement. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a self-exaltation that came through. And when we left, we were all feeling and tasting something that was not of Jesus. I think it was shown that God exists in that debate. I just don't think his ways were also reflected. The truth was communicated not in humility or with weakness, in the slightest. And that is the very thing that James says will mark this wisdom that is from above, meekness. Look at verse 13 again. It says, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Another translation, maybe the one you have in front of you, says, in the humility that comes from wisdom. The true wisdom that James is calling us to demonstrate is marked by meekness. That wise person who exhibits this humility Has learned from the Word of God and through their lived experience that God is trustworthy, that God is good, that He knows how to take care of us. This frees us from constantly grasping for control of situations and people to get what we want, to get what we need. This frees us from putting other people down in order that we can build ourselves up. There's no need to jockey for position, there's no need. We don't have to prove that we're right, we don't have to prove that we're hardworking, we don't have to prove that we're likable, because we're confident that we are a sheep who lacks nothing, as we sang about this morning. This wise person is not easily offended. They don't respond to feedback with defensiveness, because they have no reason to be defensive. They understand that they are a limited human being who is in a constant need of growth and change, who's finite and doesn't have it all figured out, which means they don't respond to criticism with aggression like many in their community were. They know that no matter how much they've learned, they always have more to learn. And so they don't dismiss other people. They listen with attentiveness. And there are times, very important times, when the wise person chooses not to speak. They choose not to share their opinion. I have another just quick example from my life that came to mind. This again is from my early days in ministry. I was at a conference with hundreds of other campus ministers and there was some controversy going on in the organization that I worked for at the time. I actually can't remember in the foggiest what it was. I just remember that there were some people that believed A and some people that believed B. And at this conference, a group of us young staff in training were with an older, wiser campus minister who had been at it for decades. We really wanted to know what he thought about this controversy because we were pretty sure that he probably agreed with us, and it would make us feel like we held the right opinion. So we asked him, what do you think? And I'm never in my life going to forget what he did. He stood there for a second as us young staff looked at him, And he said, I don't think I need to have an opinion about that. I don't think I need to have an opinion about that. What? (laughs) We were so disappointed. We so wanted fodder for this argument that was going on. And he was not going to give it to us. At first, it was frustrating. But as I thought about it, I thought, that is so wise. Instead of adding fuel to the fire, the small fire, He didn't want to engage it. He knew that the weight of his voice was significant in our lives and had the potential to fan this thing into something bigger. So he chose not to share his opinion when he had a lot of ears that were curious. He was after peace, which is the way of wisdom. And we were after being right. (laughs) I want to argue. I want to be right. It was so humbling to see his humility in that moment. And that... That word from him is something I have carried with me in my life since then. It was such a great example of this, that peacemaking is central to the work of wisdom in our lives. Wisdom from this earth and wisdom from above. Knowing the difference is so important. And by God's mercy, we can know it, and then we can start to actually feel it and taste it. Look at verse 17. I want to just briefly look at these qualities James gives us seven qualities of this wisdom that is from above. So he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. It's pure in that it's sincere in obeying God. It's committed to him. It has no defects in it. Then peaceable. That is, that this wisdom uses words and actions to bring about peace with God, peace with other human beings, and peace in the world around us, wherever we are. Third, it's gentle. Think non-combative. It doesn't force itself on others and it's not aggressive. Fourth, it's open to reason, meaning it's teachable. It doesn't get defensive and it knows it needs correction at times. Again, this person can listen to others' opinions. Fifth, it's full of mercy and good fruits. Think of the good Samaritan. Seeing a need in someone who's desperate in need and meeting that need at great cost to themselves. That's what it means to be full of mercy and good fruits. It speaks up and acts for those who can't necessarily speak up for themselves. Sixth, it's impartial. We heard about impartiality a few weeks ago from Christoph. It doesn't play favorites as it moves towards the needs around it. And lastly, seventh, it's sincere. It's without hypocrisy. It's not an act or a show put on to get what we really want or appear. So in summary, this wisdom from above is displayed in a humble life that is lived connected and in love with God for the good of others around them. And then take a look at 14, verse 14. This is where James gives us this fuller description of this alternate way, a wisdom that is not from above. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So this so-called wisdom, rather than being marked by meekness, is marked by human pride. That's the defining characteristic of it, human pride. It's bitter. And it has a continual sense of lack, of never having what it needs. And beyond that, it's you have what I want. Or even worse, you have what I want, you don't deserve it, and I do. That's what's going on with this sort of wisdom. It could be possessions, it could be position in life or relationships. It doesn't really matter. It's everything. We can do this with everything and anything. This way is consumed with the self. It's another way of saying pride. So self-promotion, being seen by others, admired by others and personal gain, self-absorption, where everything around me is about me in some way, all the time. And then self-centeredness, where things are supposed to revolve around me. It just feels that way. I think we've all felt all of these things at times. Sadly, this way turns other people into rivals in our life. Other people become competition for the things that we want. And it's frustrating. Because when we live as if the world is meant to revolve around us, and it doesn't, we are going to run into that truth and that reality over and over again. It does not revolve around me. And that is so frustrating. Remember, James is writing to followers of Jesus. What happens when that demonic wisdom infiltrates the community of believers? Just a couple ideas. Think about things like theology or church leadership. It will lead to things like speaking truth with abrasiveness and abusiveness, belittling other people who don't agree with us. all under the guise of standing for the truth. And it will lead us to value ideas about God more than we value God. Things become theory and ideas and not personal. Because here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, our community is called not to be primarily informational, but to be transformational. And because transformation happens because a personal God brings it about, we're also relational. So our community, if we're marked by this wisdom from above, we will be all about transformational and relational work. Information will be important. We want good theology. We think that's important, but that is not the centerpiece of what we do. We aren't always needing to weigh in on the latest hot-button issue, but we will be known more by our love and our embodiment of the ways of Jesus. I believe this is what James is calling them to and us to. But what do we do about this? Our response to this message from James is crucial. And This is the point where we get to apply this message to itself. How easy would it be to treat what the Holy Spirit is saying here in this word as mere information? More data that we accumulate in our mind. If we do that, we think something like, well, now that I know this information about these two kinds of wisdom, I'll do better from here on out. I know that I'm supposed to be this way and not this way, so now it's clear I will always be this way. And we all know that that's not what's going to happen. We aren't capable of that on our own. Let's not fall into that temptation. The key to this entire passage is to recognize the source of this kind of wisdom and then where it resides within us. We've already talked about the source, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. Now where does it reside? Look at verse 14 again. James says, "If you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, that is the location in your hearts in My heart, the location of jealousy and selfish ambition is there. And that's the same place where we find meekness and peace and gentleness and sincerity in the human heart. So if we want to take this message from him and use it in our lives, we need to be targeting the heart. The change that needs to happen for every one of us is in our heart because things move from within our hearts outward. All of our actions, all of our words, all of our being is a reflection of what is going on within our heart, the condition of our heart. Sometimes it's easy to think that actually, it's my circumstances that cause my actions. If this thing hadn't happened, I wouldn't have done that, for example. Been there before? The truth is, circumstances just reveal what is in our heart. I have an illustration that I want to show you that I heard. I did not come up with this, but I think it's a good one, and I think it will drive this point home for us. I do believe this is the the main thing that James is driving at in this chapter and a half, three and four. This is a water bottle full of regular water, okay? Right now, the circumstance for this bottle of water is calm. It's just sitting here in my hand. What if I give it a little little tap? Water went on the floor. I got Jeff's permission, don't worry. It's okay. <laughs> he said it gets way wetter up here when we have a baptism. Water went on the floor when I tapped it. Okay, hang with me. This tap in this illustration is someone in your life getting what you wanted. So maybe it's money. Maybe it's a new status or recognition. It's a relationship. It doesn't matter. Someone in your life got what you wanted. Why is the water on the floor? It's easy to think the water's on the floor because I hit it. Yes, if I hadn't hit it, it probably wouldn't be on the floor. But what if this was empty? If there were no water in the water bottle, no water would have come out when I hit it. If there was coffee in here, it would have been a little more exciting, right? (laughs) Coffee would have come out when I hit it. The point is that circumstance, that situation where you realize this person in your life just got what you've really been wanting will reveal what is within. It will not cause what is within. So think about if what is within at that moment is mostly jealousy and envy. What comes out? Now, because in this room we know these distinctions that I've that been sharing this morning, we actually might respond positively, but we will say that's through gritted teeth. That's the way we have words for that, right? Uh, but what if, on the other hand, what is within is this wisdom that is from above, and someone in our life gets what we really wanted? I think in that moment, we are free to celebrate with this person. We are free to be thankful to God for what they just received and we can talk all about it with them. Now that doesn't mean that we don't say, God, I want that, provide that for me. But it does mean that our heart towards them is not one of a rival or one where you have what I want and I need to get it from you. Because the condition of our heart is full of this wisdom from above. It is our hearts that are the focus of this teaching from James. We can put on a great display, but what is in our heart? It's our hearts that need renovation, it's our hearts that need the renewal. And that deep heart level change can only come from the work of Christ in our life. We don't have direct access to that thing to wave a wand and change it, but He does he can actually get in there and change our heart, so that when we once reacted with envy and jealousy, we can react with celebration and thankfulness. That can actually happen. And I know many of you in this room have experienced that kind of change. And that comes, one, we start asking God for it. We recognize, right now, I have this thing in my heart, I shouldn't be there. We start asking him, God, renovate that part of my heart, change it, and put there what is good and right, and then, we begin, and I think this is so important, this works out in the simple, mundane, everyday things in our life. That's where this matters. Because then when we get to the big things we're already used to responding. We start in our everyday lives living in union, abiding in Jesus, and we're interacting with him as we go through our day. We're going to need to unpack this more in the podcast this week, so make sure you listen to that. But at a high level, this heart change begins as we walk with Jesus through the everyday things of our life. We don't leave him by the side of our bed when we leave and then come back to him when we come back. He's with us in our workplace. He's with us in our neighborhood and at the grocery store. And we walk with him in those moments. And as we do that, he actually changes our hearts. That's what the adventure of discipleship to Jesus is. We have every reason to be confident and hope that he is working this in us, and that we can see it among us, this wisdom that is from above. Church, let's continue to move forward in that, asking him to change us. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that for me, and I ask that for my brothers and sisters in this room, that you would do the work in our hearts that is yours to do and yours alone. Help us, Lord, to cooperate with what you are doing, Help us to know what it looks like to root these things out because, Father, we want to be a place of deep transformation that is intimately connected with you where all of these fruit abide, where the way of wisdom is known and experienced. Do this among us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.